if you, when you do the, the uh, reduced sternotomy, if you make an injury to whatever structure, it's a lot more controlled setting. Two, because the heart's decompressed, uh, dissecting the heart is pretty darn easy and you can do it pretty quickly as opposed to having the heart full and then if you get into injury then you're you know there's gonna be blood everywhere and, and you have to you know that you're not on bypass yet and it's all going to cell saver so so increasingly I've actually uh, found myself putting the patients on peripheral bypass um, sooner than later and if not uh, most of the time you know I think there is a, a, a fallacy and concern about peripheral bypass and the concern is that uh, there's an increased risk of stroke uh, the data there is actually not that strong. Uh, there was one study a while back ago suggesting an increased risk of stroke with peripheral retrograde perfusion, but there's a lot of data now suggesting that's not the case. Uh, one of the papers we had published in the Annals of Thoracic Surgery uh, looking at minimally invasive versus stronotomy, and, and most of the minimally invasive patients had uh, peripheral cannulation. Uh, long story short, in that arm where most of the patients had uh, peripheral cannulation, the stroke rate was actually interestingly lower than sternotomy. So uh, suffice it to be, to be said that um, I think the, the concern about stroke for peripheral cannulation is a little bit unwarranted. Uh, in a situation where there's a hostile chest, I would have a low threshold to put the patient on peripheral cannulation. That said, for my practice, increasingly, uh, I put patients on peripheral cannulation before I do the reduced sternotomy, just to make it a lot easier uh, to go through the case. And obviously, I'm pretty comfortable doing peripheral cannulation because we do it uh, routinely for our minimally invasive cases. And since the topic of our conversation today is sutureless aortic valve replacement, can you explain why you would consider a sutureless aortic valve in this case? You know, for me, um, I, I think the name of the game is minimizing um, cross-clamp time. Uh, I think for me, pump time is a little less consequential as long as you don't have a three or four hour pump time. But if you can minimize that ischemic t heart time, I think uh, there are uh, potential, potentially significant benefits uh, to the patient. So in that light, uh, the sutureless aortic valves, there are two of them in the market, FDA-approved devices, the personal valve and the intuity valve, essentially allows you to reduce the cross-clamp time and the pump time. Uh, in most cases, you can uh, do the procedure and deploy the valve uh, and have a clamp time of 20 to 30 minutes. Um, so in, in, in that respect, if there is a complicated patient or a high-risk patient, whether it be a redo, uh, AVR, or concomitant procedure, AVR, mitral, uh, TVR, then, then you can cut down a significant amount of that clamp time uh, by using the sutureless valve. So to clarify, the indications for consideration of a Percival might be combined surgery, a reduced sternotomy, or endocarditis in a high-risk patient. The two benefits or reduced cross-clamp time, as we discussed, and possibly less exposure needed. Is there any other situation where you might use a Percival? Yeah, thanks, Jenny. That's, that's an important kind of summary. The only thing I would change is that for endocarditis, um, I may or may not use a Percival, depending on whether or not there's an annular abscess, and, and I might want it to, to debris the, the annulus and, and, uh, uh, and make sure it actually sticks. One interesting thing is, you know, uh, one of the contraindications for Percival is AI, and oftentimes for endocarditis, uh, you don't actually have aortic stenosis. It's actually more of a, a flexible uh, aortic annulus. So, so I, I might be less inclined to use a Percival for endocarditis. For all those reasons, I think they're a great. Um, probably another, I think, really good advantage of the Percival valve uh, are the hemodynamics, and the hemodynamics for patients with small annulus 
uh, are, um, are superior to uh, the regular sutured valves. So when I see a patient and I'm evaluating a patient for, um, for possible aortic valve replacement, the first thing I'll do is I'll, I'll actually look at the echo and then I'll look at the left ventricular outflow tract diameter to get an idea of how big of a valve I can put inside the patient. Then you just have to start thinking, okay, well, you know, if you have to do a root enlargement or um, uh, because the patient has a small annulus, or maybe there are other options, and one of the options is to potentially consider a sutureless valve because the small annulus uh, will have better hemodynamics if you use a, a, a sutureless valve. And at the moment, there are two sutureless valves widely available. As you stated, the Edwards Intuity Elite and the Liva Nova Percival. The Percival is the most frequently used worldwide. Could you briefly review the steps of Percival deployment? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, it's, first off, you need to, to, it's all about preoperative planning. So you need to, uh, at the beginning, know to consider the personal valve and make sure everyone in the room is ready to use the personal valve because it does require some preparation on the back table. Um, first, I would actually measure uh, the, uh, the echo before we really even make a decision to see if the patient is a candidate for a personal. I'll kind of get to those details in a little bit. When you actually get down to the procedural aspects of it, um, the, uh, the prosthesis mount on the holder on the back table is usually uh, performed with the assistance of the, the, uh, the representative for the device uh, or your scrub tech uh, or a PA. Uh, next is exposing the ascending aorta, and, and this is really, really important. Uh, the personal valve is a higher profile valve than your regular sutured valves, so the aortotomy should be higher uh, than your standard aortotomy. I think most people probably do an aortotomy somewhere below the fat pad or maybe somewhere midway between the fat pad. For a personal valve, the recommendation is a transverse aerotomy pretty much at the level of the fat pad because the last thing you want to do is place a personal valve and have the, the frame extend beyond the aerotomy and then it's a little bit tricky because when you're closing you can potentially catch a frame or catch one of the, the leaflets. Um, as a standard AVR, <clears throat> you should remove the, uh, the native leaf leaflets and the calci calcification um, before the operation, you need to make sure if, if the patient um, uh, anatomically will qualify for the personal, and, and there are a, a couple of measurements that the device rep can help you do, but essentially it involves measuring the STJ and the aortic diameter, and if that ratio is less than 1.3, um, then, um, then that's a, a good uh, option uh, for a personal is a potentially a good option for the, the patient. When you eventually debris the, the, uh, the leaflets and the calcium, uh, the valve comes in two sizers. There's a clear sizer and a white sizer uh, or a transparent sizer. Uh, long story short, the clear sizer should be able to pass through pretty freely and the white sizer should be pretty snug. Um, you know, I have to admit, I'm not sure why there's a clear sizer. What I do is I just grab the white sizer and I find out which is snug and I just do that to save myself a step as opposed to just doing the clear sizer and then switching over to the white sizer. So, so I just jump straight to my white sizer and, uh, and size from there. One really, really important point, uh, and I think early on uh, there might have been some, some kind of mis, mis uh, uh, use of the personal valve. And when we do heart surgery and aortic valve replacements, our, our inclination is always to put the largest valve possible. The issue with the personal valve is that you actually do not want to put the largest valve possible because if you put too large of a valve, then you actually have a risk of, uh, of PBL and even maybe embolization. Um, so again, the temptation is to put the largest valve possible, but, but, but don't do that. 
I have to admit, I think most of the time I end up putting a medium-sized valve, maybe a large valve. At my early experience, I try to put an extra large, and I probably probably shouldn't have put in uh, that large of a valve. Um, so eventually, you, you decide which size valve personal you're going to um, uh, implant. Uh, it gets um, collapsed on the back table. I think the term they use is collapsed. It's not crimped um, like a taber valve. A taber valve gets crimped pretty small. A personal valve just kind of gets collapsed. So um, the leaflets theoretically shouldn't be damaged during the um, that process. You put sutures at the nadir um, uh, of the cusp. Uh, it's important to not put the sutures too low because during the early experiences, uh, putting sutures too low uh, would increase the risk of heart block. So the recommendation is about two to three millimeters uh, under under the uh, the nadir of the annulus. Uh, I usually use a, a fluoroproline uh, while um, our, our scrub tech is uh, collapsing the valve on the back table. So you have the valve up. There are these little eyelets, and you essentially put the fluoroproline through the eyelets. Uh, I put a rubber shot on the tip of it, and then I advance the um, the the valve into the aortic annulus. Um, the valve is collapsed, so you, you, what I it, it's kind of a, a tricky thing you have to do, where you you have to visualize the post of the peripheral valve, and you have to rotate it so that it's actually in parallel or kind of overlapping the native uh, aortic valve. Uh, uh, commissures. Um, so just kind of mentally know that because once it expands, that's where it should be. The other thing is you want it to be in three dimensions. So so the angle is actually really important when you're deploying the valve because you you don't want it to be off axis. That sounds pretty obvious, but um, but that happens and and you know you definitely don't want to do that. So so you you parachute the valve down uh, and um, with the uh, kind of the, the previously placed sutures as guides. And, um, and then you essentially deploy the valve. Um, there's these little knobs that you essentially turn the knob uh, a couple times, the valve gets deployed. There's a, uh, I'm not sure what it, it's called, a little, a little thing in the middle and you pull that out and you, and you fully deploy the valve. Once you, de once you deploy the valve, um, you need to post dilate with the balloon to uh, four atmospheres for roughly 30 seconds. And while you're dilating, uh, because uh, of the uh, the frame of the balloon, it, it, the frame of the valve continues to expand. Uh, you should uh, irrigate with some warm saline to kind of get that that frame to completely ex expand. Uh, what I do there, I like to kind of make a test to make sure that it, it's it's a tight seal. So I'll take some saline and then inject uh, on a leaflet. The leaflet should close, but more importantly, I look in the sinuses to make sure the water stays there because if the water is draining through. Then, then that's a risk for a PVL. It shouldn't. It should be a nice tight seal. Um, so, so that's it. And you know, again, I know that that was kind of a little bit verbose, but um, once you kind of get the hang of it, you can do it pretty quickly, and um, and you'll become a quick fan of of all the people in the OR and anesthesia for going through an AVR uh, pretty quickly. And you mentioned that you wouldn't use a Percival in instances of severe AI. Are there any other contraindications? Yeah, so, um, yeah, definitely pure AI. Um, you know, again, I think enterocarditis, I'm not sure if it's a hard contraindication, but I, I'd be a little more reluctant to use it uh, in a patient with enterocarditis. Uh, in patients with dilated roots or um, ascending aorta or a dissection, that's obvious because essentially the, the valve needs to anchor in the STJ. So if you have a dilated root, it's not going to anchor, and you have a dilated ascending aorta, then there's a risk of it uh, uh, embolizing. Uh, or or um, not staying, because of the the, the material of the personal valve 
there is a concern that if you have a hypersensitivity to nickel or cobalt, that you know, maybe you should not you should avoid uh, having the personal valve implanted. And could you comment on the short and long-term results of these rapid deployment valves? Sure. Um, the the first man implant of Percival was in 2007. At five years, the original 30 cases in the study, uh, only one patient had mild paravibular leak. There were no dislodgements, deterioration, or thrombosis. In Belgium, one of the original pilot centers, 438 Percival valves uh, have been implanted from uh, roughly a 10-year time period, 207. 2007-2017 with an average 3.5 years and a follow-up of 11 years and the gradient was respectable it was at 13 millimeters of mercury uh, during the most recent echo follow-up. Pacemaker, pacemaker uh, implantation rate uh, was initially 7.8 which is high but eventually decreased to 4.7 in, in more recent uh, 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 cohort of patients and, and the thought is that just an understanding of how deep to implant the valve in the placement of the sutures. Again, you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, placing those sutures too deep and deploying the valve too deep where the conduction system is can increase the risk of pacemaker. So I think most series now report a, a pacemaker implantation rate of probably, you know, 4% or so, which I think is, is reasonable. So combining three trials of personal data uh, and looking at 731 patients, total uh, minimally invasive methods of entry were used in one quarter of the patients. Uh, that included uh, a partial uh, sternotomy as well as right thoracotomy. At five-year follow-up, there's no instance of dislodgement, migration, structural valve deterioration, or thrombosis, and the mean gradient, gradient decreased from 41 to um, roughly 11 in the post-operative period, and more importantly, it remained stable um, during kind of midterm follow-up at five years. And finally, do you think there's a clear benefit in terms of combined cases like double valves or valve cabbage? No, I, I definitely, I definitely do because again, you know, um, I think the name of the game is minimizing that ischemic injury to the heart, uh, and um, and if you can cut down on that cross clamp time, uh, I think you could do more, and and essentially the heart's less ischemic. Uh, there is a little bit of a learning curve to the Percival, but I think once you learn how to do it, uh, it can be, um, it can definitely be a, your friend and important tool to have in your toolbox. I'll, I'll add that you know I don't use Percival all the time, and 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 I don't, I don't use necessarily any valve all the time. I think as a surgeon, it's important to have a lot of different tools in your toolbox to be able to use during during uh, certain situations um, and circumstances. Do you have it? One or two other thoughts to end the session? Yeah, you know I think um, the the biggest thought is um, one. Um, kind of what I was hinting at earlier, I think it's important to have a lot of different tools in your toolbox. Um, I think the personal valve is, is an excellent valve. If you have a complicated case, um, you're doing um, concomitant uh, a valve, cabbage, double valve procedure on a high-risk, frail patient, uh, I think it's an excellent option. I think there's uh, a lot of uh, good long-term data uh, using the personal valve that's been published um, that's out there so you can you can trust that um, that the valve is is a good valve to use um, implantation is important again you know initially there's a higher uh, pacemaker implantation rate but um, but more recently we haven't seen that to be the case uh, I think it's an excellent valve for patients who have small aortic annulus uh, and um, and it's something I'll consider if I want to avoid having to do a root enlargement in the patients who, who's high risk and and needing uh, other other things done. 
Um, but I think it's important to have a lot of tools in your toolbox. The other valve, um, and that I have a little bit less experience in, is the Intuity valve. Um, it's interesting, by definition, the only true sutureless valve is the Percival valve. The Intuity valve is considered a rapid deployment valve. Uh, that said, it can also cut down on cross-clamp time and, uh, and, and has, um, I guess, reportedly some of the similar benefits as the Percival valve does. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Wynn. After this conversation, we certainly have a clear sense of the types of cases where a sutureless valve has advantages to reduce cross-clamp time and possibly improve survival. Thank you, Jenny.